Hello and welcome to Keeping Track. This is part one of a two-part documentary on Gaza and the Palestine question. This documentary aims to make what may seem complicated much less so. The following episode is a collection of several interviews I conducted with academics, historians, refugees, activists and Palestinians. I would like to thank all those who contributed to the making of this documentary. Gaza Part 1 History, Occupation and Conflict Yeah, I mean, it is a complex situation. This bit is very simple to understand. This how we got here might be a bit complex for people to understand. So I know some people will say, some colleagues or friends of mine will say, this is a very simple, straightforward issue at its core. I don't agree. I think saying it's complicated, it may be complicated for some people who don't feel that they're informed about it, but I think that the actual architecture of what's happening is quite simple. A very strong guy's beating up a very weak guy. I always felt that justice was on the side of the Palestinians. The, the establishment of the State of Israel was a solution to an, an Eastern European and European problem, i.e. anti-Semitism. It really had nothing to do with the Middle East nor Palestinians. So the Palestinians in the end ended up paying for anti-Semitism. And equally there's a much longer history there of persecution of Jews in Europe and elsewhere and around the world and the understandable Zionist movement looking for a homeland. I mean, that, again, is explicable, that's understandable, but it just so happens that that homeland is where people already lived. I'm not a psychologist, but you frequently find pop psychology mentioned in the papers and on the radio, and I think it's a fairly commonly held theory among psychologists that victims of abuse, in turn, inflict abuse on others. I think that's definitely the case if you look back at 1948. In 1948, when the Nakba happened, 750,000 Palestinians were ethnically cleansed. We've been under this colonization, the Israeli colonization of our land since 1948. So for 75 years, we've been colonized. The Israeli occupation is illegal. We have seen like when they entered Gaza, they are putting flags everywhere. And it's not something you do to get back your hostages. It's more like a colonization. The claim is to destroy Hamas. They know where to find Hamas, but simply it's complete destruction of Gaza. Hello, I'm David Ryan. I'm a professor in history in UCC and I specialize in the history of US foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, it is a complex situation. Obviously, the attacks of October the 7th arise out of, you know, a direct act of violence by Hamas against the Israelis by breaching the wall and moving after the sort of Israeli military and also into the various kibbutzims and so forth, resulting in well over a thousand casualties and Israel responding. But you've really got to go back in history to find, well, why is Hamas acting in the way it does. At the nub of the entire situation is the creation of Israel in 1948, which resulted from a United Nations partition plan in 1947. You know, at that point, there had been a sort of strong movement to find a homeland for Jewish people. Obviously, 
the momentum accelerated after 1917 with the Balfour Declaration and then World War II and the Holocaust really made it an absolutely urgent issue. So Palestine was partitioned, uh, you know, and the history of partition in and of itself is a tragic one. You know, you have obviously Northern Ireland, India and Palestine roughly at the same time, and they have resulted in decades and decades of violence in most cases. So you have that division. Israel's created May 14, 1948. The United States is the first country to recognize the country, followed immediately by a Soviet recognition of Israel as well. The territory, Palestine, was a British mandate, and with the division, it was Israel was given around 56% of the land, albeit the Palestinian population was much larger. And obviously in the war um, that erupted almost immediately, there was a huge number of Palestinian refugees created, you know, numbers vary, but, you know, 750,000 to above that, you know, by a couple of hundred thousand. And obviously the violence was, you know, um, extraordinary. The displacement created an imbalance within the region. An awful lot of Palestinians went to Jordan and to the territories that remained in Palestinian hands. So the problem really results or comes from there, you know, and it is a competition or a disagreement on the land. So uh, almost immediately you have Israel being attacked by the Arab neighboring um, countries, Egypt, Syria, Jordan, and so forth. And Israel ultimately wins that war and expands its territory. And the frustration on the part of the Palestinians with the sort of lack of the international community doing anything about the situation boils over 20 years later you have the 1967 war and in that war Israel expands its territory again you know so you you know the, you have the Gaza Strip you have the Golden Heights you have the West Bank and you have East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem obviously and with all of these expansions you know the Palestinian anger and frustration is becoming more and more acute My name is Lawrence Davis, and I'm a lecturer in the Department of Government and Politics, where I'm the director of the MSC International Public Policy and Diplomacy. And I'm also a co-founder of Jewish Voice for Just Peace Ireland, and I was also formerly land coordinator and media spokesperson for the Irish Ship to Gaza campaign. Any starting point is somewhat arbitrary, but I think what would be helpful, I think, for your listeners, and this is how I usually approach it, you know, the starting point, is to think about when the Gaza Strip itself was created. So the Gaza Strip emerged, as we know, in 1948. This was a largely pastoral area, community, of Palestine, but 1948 was a very significant moment because that was a moment that from the Israeli perspective was a moment of celebration, the creation of the State of Israel, but from the Palestinian perspective was a catastrophe, what's called the Nabka. And during that period, some 700,000, over 700,000 people were driven from their homes there were massacres, from the Palestinian perspective, catastrophe. And the refugees from the 
Natka, many of them, large numbers, settled in what is now called the Gaza Strip. This is one of the most densely populated areas in the earth. So I think a useful starting point to talking about uh, what's happening today is 1948. How Gaza was created, how the Gaza Strip was created in the first place, why it was created, and what are the consequences for the way in which it was formed back in, in 1948. Very important for understanding the history is to understand the history of the late 19th century. And this was the beginnings of the movement that we understand as Zionism um, today. Zionism, complex ideological movement, but began to be formulated to grow as a, not only as an intellectual and cultural ideology, but also as a political movement in the, during the 19th century, from the mid-19th century, the end of the 19th century. It was partly in response to persecutions in, of Jewish people in Europe. I mean, the Dreyfus Affair in France, the pogroms in Russia, and the early Zionist leaders, they believed their response to these persecutions, they said the only solution was a Jewish national homeland, a state, and they thought about different possible locations of such a state, and eventually, under the influence of Herzl and others, settled on Palestine, and there are various historical reasons why. This was largely an intellectual and cultural idea, but it received support from a variety of, of other parties, including, and this surprises many people to know this, Christian Zionism, some of whom were, as we know, like Balfour later, anti-Semites, um, but many Christian Zionists, in part because, I suppose, of restitution or guilt, wanted a homeland, you know, and that was particularly true in the, in the 20th century after the Holocaust, but in, in the 19th century, who believed, because of their religious millenarian views, the, the second coming of Christ, that this could only happen if the Jews returned to and established their homeland in Zion. So this was a major force for, which people don't, you know, very often, you know, talk about, was Christian Zionism. Another force, of course, a very important force, was Britain and British imperialism. Here we have to move forward a little bit to the 20th century, the end of the Ottoman Empire, the establishment of the British Mandate in Palestine. And the British saw Zionism, the movement of the Jews from Europe to Palestine, as a solution to many of their problems. And so, you know, if one looking, again, looking at this through the settler colonial lens, a lot of people say, well, that lens, theoretical lens, isn't appropriate to understand what's happening in Israel-Palestine. Why do they say this? Because they said, well, where's the settler colonial power that's... Well, indirectly and directly in many ways, it was, it was Britain. You have the issuing of the Balfour Declaration, a very important document in 1917. And this was an expression of support for the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine, which, very importantly, didn't mention the political rights, it mentioned the cultural, it mentioned the, 
didn't religious didn't mention the political rights of the then predominant inhabitants of the land who are the Palestinians. So what was a very small but growing movement at the end of the 19th century became very important in the 20th century, Zionism. If one looks at Palestine, it's important to keep this point in mind, one looks at Palestine at the turn of the 20th century, the population, it was roughly 3% Jewish population. It was very small Jewish population. And that started to grow with the movement of Jews who were inspired by this, uh, this movement, Zionism, to create a state, a homeland in this area, which was already inhabited by a people. And that's, you know, that really gets to the nub of this issue, which, isn't, which is enormously complex, but in that sense isn't too complex. It's not so complex in the sense that, you see, you're bound to have a conflict here erupting because you have a land where you do have a people living already. It was a flourishing communities in which Jews, Christians, Muslims, living side by side, largely peacefully, cooperating in, in many ways, economically and otherwise. And this change as the Zionist movement led to more and more settlers who were attempting to establish themselves, by various means, in the land. Nineteen forty-eight. Let's go back in time to nineteen forty-eight and think. You know, situate ourselves in the, in that historical context. World War Two has finished, has is over. But what happened during that war? The Holocaust, among other things, right? Over six million Jews were murdered during the Holocaust. You had enormous feelings of guilt on the part of many European parties, governments, but also in the United States. And interestingly, Germany was one of the first to, you know, throw its weight behind this project for the creation of the State of Israel. Why? Again, because of its guilt over what happened in the Holocaust. But it wasn't just guilt, it was also, this was sort of a way of shunting the problem, the Jewish problem, you know, off the shores of Europe to Palestine. So even for many who were anti-Semitic, right, this was a convenient way of, of shunting off the problem somewhere else. So, so I think, you know, that played a very large part in what happened. But then, of course, this raises the question of, you know, well, why, why should the Palestinian people pay the price for, you know, what happened in Europe. This was a, to come back to that point, this was a land with a people. It was not an empty, barren land. It's, it's interesting to me. 1987, when I first went to work in, in Israel, I worked on two kibbutzim. And the story that I was told back then that, you know, you're privileged to work in a kibbutzim to help make the desert bloom that this was, it had been an empty land, an uncultivated land. And, you know, the story you were told, your work would help to make the desert bloom. And, and, you're, and this was the story that was told of, of Israel, that Zionist settlement, the creation of the state of Israel, 
and that Israel had made the desert bloom, that it had grown the economy, that it had done all of this. You know, that's, it's not historically accurate. As I said before, at the end of the 19th century, at the turn of the 20th century, when the Zionist movement was growing as a political movement, as an idea, as a political movement, these were flourishing, largely pastoral, but flourishing communities, beginning to undertake processes of modernization, nationalization. So again, I think, you know, it's interesting. It depends, you know, how, how you look, what perspective, what lens you use to examine and to understand the conflict. But I think that's important. I'm a student of political ideologies. And, you know, very often, especially in ideological arguments, you find dogmatic positions completely far apart, people in, in entrenched positions, and there's no movement. Part of the reason that I find it's interesting to study and important to study political ideologies is to see that those entrenched positions, that those dogmatic positions needn't be so, right? And here you bring in the importance of perspective, and that's why I don't want to paint black and white picture, I want to try to introduce some element of historical nuance. My name is Pierce McHenry. I'm a geographer in UCC. My special area of interest is migration studies and all of the areas that relate to it, like asylum and refugees and where people go and why they go and how they settle into a new country and how they get used to living in that new country and how they're received by the people in that country. So all of those issues, which are now kind of really to the forefront of all our attention around the world at the moment, that's my, that's my daily bread. The, the other thing to remember is that there was a huge time of sympathy towards the Jews at the time, for obvious reasons. I mean, this is still the immediate aftermath of the Holocaust. So I think Western European opinion and American opinion would have been 80% in favour of the Jews cause, to the extent that people really didn't have, didn't know anything about Palestinians. Between 1917 and 1948, there was a degree of, I suppose you'd have to say, gradually growing instability. Like what you had before that in the Arab world was a kind of a, a not very well-defined sense of, of national identity. There are some famous texts on Arab nationalism, and they're all kind of late 19th century stuff, and you can see they're pointing the way towards a European-style nation-state. But certainly it was possible to argue in the 40s that there wasn't anything like that on the ground, and therefore you weren't really dismantling anybody else's state. What you had was the remnants of what was left when the Ottoman Empire was broken up, and this would have been part of the, a former province within that empire. But that, you know, you, you can't point to an organised independence movement with a long history and a kind of a clear idea about what kind of state they wanted to see emerge from it. Certainly you can look at different writers and say, well, this is what so-and-so thought. But by, you know, it would have seemed a fairly unequal battle because the Zionists were there with a the project and they had a very clear picture of where they wanted to go and they had a long history of, if you like, campaigning for it. They had influence in the key European states. And at the end of the Second World War, that certainly would have been Britain and the United States more than anybody. So like, in a sense, they made the right call. There were some of them who wanted to ally actively on the, with the Soviet side because there was a strong kind of left-wing influence as well within Zionism. But the call they made was a strategic one, that their best allies would be in, in the West and particularly the United States.
I'm David Fitzgerald. I'm a senior lecturer here at the School of History in UCC. I lecture on strategic studies and also within department history on American foreign policy and American military history. It hasn't always been the case that US and Israel have been allies since forever. And if you hear politicians talk, they, they will talk in those terms with a, a special relationship or whatever else. Now, the US does recognize Israel early on in 1948, which is the Truman administration does that. A little bit of debate within the White House whether or not to do it. They do recognize Israel um, and they have reasonably good relationships with Israel from day one. If you look at sort of Israel's wars over the years, right, so obviously if they were independence in 1947, 48, 48 really, that, you know, the US has no major involvement in that. In 56, Israel combines with Britain and France to try and seize the, the Suez Canal. And the US, the power they put stopped with. The Eisenhower administration actually basically said, like, tell them no. So the first time Israel occupies Gaza is 1956. And the Americans are the ones who tell the British and friends, like, turn your tanks around, take your paratroopers off the Suez Canal, or we will crash your economy. And the Americans at that point in time are really worried about basically decolonization more broadly and how its, its image in the, in the world and, and the regional balance of power. And they're really worried that what Britain and France are doing and Israel overreaching. So the, in 56, the Americans stopped the war. They're the ones who say, and it's not really about Israel, it's about Britain and France. They, and, and America says, like, we will no longer provide funding for you. We will no longer, you know, there's all these economic sanctions are put on the table. And immediately the British, in a very humiliating fashion, and the French pull out. And that's the end of that conflict. In 67, with the Six-Day War, I think you see the beginnings of a change. Now, the Israelis actually bomb an American ship, USS Liberty, and they attack an American ship probably pretty deliberately, right? So the relations aren't that warm. But already by that stage, what you've seen is that the Kennedy administration have decided that they need Israel to be a bulwark in the Cold War because they're worried about the, the, the Cold War encroaching on the Middle East and they're, they're thinking of building a defensive network of, of allies there. Israel becomes attractive, I think, to them in the first instance, and then Johnson builds on that. And 67 with the Six-Day War, what happens is Israel's military performance is extraordinary. You know, they, they basically have a preemptive attack on Syria and Egypt, and they win a huge victory. And that really impresses Americans more broadly. And at that point, they really see Israel as, well, okay, these, this can read a bulwark, and they're a very effective one at that. That, that becomes, I think, another, another point. You know, the Americans look at the Israelis and say, right, okay, this is serious. 73, next war, Yom Kippur War, where Israel is, is, is itself hit by a surprise attack by Egypt and Syria. At that point, the Americans are very much all in. They, they flow massive amounts of military aid into Israel to prop their, their Cold War ally, in a sense. You know, and they, they, at one point, Henry Kissinger almost threatens the Soviet Union with, you know, uh, raising the nuclear alert level. It becomes very, very serious, and the Soviets do blink, and the Soviets then don't flow aid into the Syrians. So it becomes a Cold War crisis. And I think after Yom Kippur, that relationship becomes very strong because the Israelis have relied on the Americans for weapons. Um, and then you have a couple more layers beyond the geopolitics, right? The very kind of realist sense of, like, what's, you know, of moving peace around the chessboard. I think you also have... A cultural affinity that's long-standing. I mean, there are a lot of American Jews, and I don't mean that conspiratorially. There's lots of people who go back and forth between two countries. A really serious cultural affinity, and um, where there are a lot of people in Israel who have American backgrounds, American citizenship, and are able to speak to their fellow Americans about these issues, and that affinity grows. You then have kind of like a strange and kind of dark thing going on where I would say, starting in the 70s, American evangelicals become very interested in Israel. Um, at its most extreme end, it's really about the Bible and about the sense of like the end of days will come when the Jews are back in Israel and then at that point 
the apocalypse will happen, all the Jews are wiped out. It, it's a strange thing. But they have an affinity with Israel as well, as, as sort of what they keep on calling is, this term sort of comes up, Judeo-Christian values, which is actually a new term. It's not a very old term. And so the evangelical wing become very invested in Israel for this very strange biblical reason, which is, you know, actually in the long run wouldn't be very good for Israel. But it actually, you know, Israeli politicians are adept at, 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 at I think, leaning into that a little bit and building those relationships. And because Israel from 73 onwards is relying very heavily on US military aid, um, although I think these days they don't actually need it, whether or not they're getting it. Um, Israelis become very, very good at reading US domestic politics, at explaining themselves to the US, the US political class. You have, um, infamously, you have lobby groups like APEC, the American Israel Political Action Committee, who will spend hugely in primary races and in general races to swing congressional seats in favour of pro-Israel candidates. It's something they're doing right now. And what's interesting is you're seeing the part of the Democratic Party right now breaking with them for the first time and calling them out as a danger. Um, but they've been doing that for quite a long time and um, they have a bipartisan sort of consensus and um, they, they're very good at working on both sides of the aisle. And that, that's been a big part of Israel's strategy. I think what's interesting is Netanyahu is probably the first Prime Minister to not do that. Netanyahu has leaned very heavily on the Republican Party, which is a new thing actually. Israeli politicians are usually more cautious than that because they're, they're worried about who's in the White House. But it seems like Netanyahu did not get on particularly well with the Obama administration, including Joe Biden, uh, who was snubbed when he visited um, Israel, right, uh, famously, um, and then leaned very heavily on Donald Trump as being the saviour of Israel and has been open about his wish for the Trump White House return, which is an unusual move. But then I suppose that we see in the recent weeks, that hasn't mattered, whereas Joe Biden has rallied in Netanyahu's cause, and the US, with I think some very minor caveats, has been totally on board uh, with what Israel is doing. Israel obviously from the very get-go has felt its its existence be precarious uh, and look you can understand that both in terms of its immediate context where it comes from which is not entirely but, but partly because of many many hundreds of thousands of Jews fleeing the Holocaust and coming coming from that environment to the fact that when Israel does declare independence after a very bloody insurgency against British rule it is immediately attacked by all of its neighbours and I think you know the first instance when you have your back against the wall or against the sea, as they did, I think you're going to fight with everything you have, right? Um, it seems pretty clear that that's, that's you know, what the impetus was, that the, the, the various units that made up the, what became the Israeli Defence Force, I mean, they had nothing to lose, um, quite, quite literally. So you can understand how their performance comes out of that. But you know, the IDF is interesting in terms of its culture. So there's a couple of things that are interesting about it. One is that it is a mass conscript army. It's one of the few left in the world, actually, where it's universal military service is, is still widespread. I've got plenty of Israeli friends who served reluctantly in the, in the Israeli military, doing various roles. Everybody serves. On the one hand, it means you can mobilise a lot of manpower. We've seen in recent weeks they've mobilised, I think, 385,000 people. That's 8% of the Israeli workforce. But I think that that citizen army thing, it's something they really lean on culturally. There's a reasonably democratic ethos within the Israeli military. I mean, they do take orders, but they don't necessarily stand in ceremony. The amount of formality, certainly in the early days, they had wasn't very much. And that leads them to be a very, I would say, agile. 
that, you know, they would take initiative very openly. They wouldn't wait for higher command to give an order. That can cause problems, people racing ahead of orders and things. But that's been a, a trope over the years of, of the Israeli military, basically. The phrase is called mission command. The idea is basically, you give your subordinate a mission, you don't tell them how to do the job, and that's all you do. So, so then that's given them an awful lot of creativity and agility over the years, and tactically that's mattered a lot. The other thing I think that matters is they're very technologically advanced. They've always sought out new technology, first from France, then from the US, and they've got it. And then that relation with the US has mattered hugely. Israel gets the best American technology it has to offer, uh, always. So if you look at the Iron Dome interceptor system that Israel uses to intercept rockets, that's, you know, a joint production with the Americans. Um, the Americans have helped pay for it, they've helped work through the tech with the Israelis for it. Um, so really, until very recently, they've been very dependent on the Americans for that. Most of their equipment is American, and, you know, the Americans usually will sell, Israel gets the good stuff. Um, and in some cases with Iron Dome, better than what the Americans actually have, uh, which is really unusual. So that relationship has been really important just because the American support has been tech and they've been very, very good at using that, I think. I was originally a member of the Department of Foreign Affairs. I was a serving diplomat and I served in Brussels and Beirut and Paris. And for me, Lebanon was the place I first encountered the modern Middle East uh, with all its complexities. I went there in 1982, just after Israel had invaded. And I very quickly found myself in places like the Palestinian refugee camps of Sabra and Shatila, where there was a famous massacre back then. And from that, I became passionately interested, really, in Lebanese and Middle Eastern affairs. I arrived in September of 1982. There had been this invasion, and contrary to expectations, this was, for the first time, a fairly comprehensive invasion. They had invaded previously in 1978, and they'd gone up as far as the Litani River, which kind of divides the southern quarter of Lebanon from the rest of the country. But this was the first time ever that an Israeli army had actually come up and invaded the capital city of a neighbouring Arab country because they did actually come as far as Beirut. Uh, you also had the bombardment of Beirut before they actually came with their troops and that went on over the summer. And again, that was um, at the time a very shocking event uh, for the Lebanese as much as anyone else. And one particular journalist with the New York Times, Tom Friedman, he's still a journalist with New York Times, he's one of the op-ed people now. And he's an expert on the Middle East um, in, in every sense and widely recognized as such. But he used the phrase indiscriminate to describe Israeli bombing of uh, Beirut in 1982, in the summer of 82. And he got into a lot of trouble with his own newspaper, uh, which would have been seen as kind of broadly speaking, a liberal newspaper which supported Israel. And when, when Tom Friedman used that expression, I, I knew him when I was there. Uh, and that caused a, a big controversy, but in fact it was accurate. There was huge damage done in uh, West Beirut by Israeli bombardments. And their idea, and their only desire actually, was to force out the PLO. And in that they were successful. Chaotic situation on the ground, huge numbers of people. Nothing like as bad as things are now in Gaza, and I don't want to suggest that they were, but the fact remains that you had a desperate situation in Beirut, which was by then blockaded by the Israeli army. And what the Israelis also wanted to do, by the way, was to install a phalanges-controlled government. That was part of their objectives, and they succeeded in doing that. But basically, at that stage then, you had the Palestinians kind of, you know, with their backs to the wall, 
you had the population of Beirut itself pretty well shocked, really, and, and experiencing huge hardship as well. I suppose I, I had an idea, first of all, that a, a refugee camp was a kind of a place with a lot of tents in it, you know, and water running in the streets and, and, and people living in abject misery. And while there was some truth to that, uh, I also very quickly found that um, Palestinians had an extraordinary ability and an extraordinary sense of being able to make a home for themselves. So you'd be going through these streets and there were kind of wires everywhere and water everywhere and <coughs> sewage in more places than there should have been and so on. And then you go into somebody's house and while there would be nothing of any wealth in it, it would be just beautifully kept and you would be made welcome. And they had that wonderful ability to sit you down, no matter who you were, you could be visiting royalty and you'd get treated in the same way as a visitor like myself or as the neighbour coming in. And I began to discover then that there was um, a, a very strong uh, independent community of Palestinians who were proud of themselves and proud of their heritage, but who saw themselves as having absolutely no future. And for them, the past, what they looked back to was already, um, you know, uh, decades in the past because it was 1948 and everything was by reference to 1948 because that was the year of the Nakba which is what these Palestinians call the events around the creation of Israel when they were expelled in their hundreds of thousands from their own land. And in a sense, at the time that I was in Beirut and hadn't um, kind of really got to grips with the place, but they were still um, caught in that vision of what happened to them some decades before and wondering what their future was. And it was just a desperate situation, and yet they had this extraordinary ability to kind of to be, to be resilient and to keep going and to kind of make the best of whatever they could. My name is Ali Kasha. I am in the School of Public Health. I am senior lecturer in epidemiology. I am a PI at the Infant Research Center. I do maternal and child health research. I am a Palestinian. I was born in Lebanon as a refugee in the 70s. Both my parents were born in Palestine, which is on uh, the Lebanese border, what's now called Israel. In 1948, the Nakba happened. And now people, I think, more familiar with that, um, 750,000 Palestinians were ethnically cleansed from Palestine. And now we are more than 6 million out of those 750,000. So my parents were about 12 and 5 in 1948, my father and mother. Their families ended up being refugees in Lebanon. If we call my grandparents as the first generation, my parents as the second generation, I don't know how you calculate it, because my parents were born in Palestine, so I don't know that they would be the first or second. And I was one of the next generation of Palestinians who were born as refugees. And many of us died as refugees. So people who were born in Lebanon or in Syria or in Jordan, and they lived for 40, 50, 60, 70 years, and they died as refugees, basically. People like me moved to the West, and uh, although you have a uh, citizenship from other country, but inside you are still that refugee that will never leave you, basically. So I was born in the 70s, uh, and that's when the Lebanese civil war started, the, the year I was born, actually. And... 
I keep, I was told so many times by my parents that the night I was born, my father was, started digging a shelter in the house in Lebanon because like they could see where things are heading basically. In 1978, Israel invaded Lebanon for the first time. So you would be walking in the street and suddenly they start shelling or bombing the streets. So they have the tanks, mostly. And we used to call it random bombing or random shelling, and people would just die on the streets. And I've seen people dying on the streets as a kid. But that was kind of usual, seeing that people wasn't really a huge thing, which is sad to some extent, but thankfully... It didn't, at least for me, being traumatic. That you can just accept it as a matter of life. Like now in Gaza, they say Hamas or the Palestinian resistance are using human shields. They say Hamas or Islamic Jihad, it's jihadist, it's ISIS. Uh, it's jihad, kind of taking the Islamic jihadist term. But during those days, all the Palestinian resistance was either communist or secular. But they called us communists then. So whatever you do, they will find a way. Now, are you surprised? No. That's what occupiers do. That's what colonizers do. That's what apartheid regimes do. What else do you expect? When somebody have stolen your land, your home, made you a refugee, and not just that, they kept going after you. Like you run away into another country, and they kept going after you. But again, you don't expect anything less. That's how occupiers survive, because they know the minute they don't do that, they can miss the justification for their existence in the first place. And that's what is missing. My name is Kathy Glavanis Grantham. As you can probably hear from my um, accent, I originate from San Diego, California. But I left the United States in 1971, and I've never lived there since. In 1982, I got a job at Beersay University in the West Bank. I was really fed up with living in the northeast of England. I'd never been there. I always felt that justice was on the side of the Palestinians. And so that really began my serious journey into understanding the Palestine question. So I went there in September 1982, initially to go for one year, and I ended up staying nine. So I experienced Israeli occupation firsthand. Obviously, I suppose the main difference theoretically was that I had a passport and I could leave. But as a resident, I experienced much of what Palestinians experienced. In other words, you know, when there was a curfew, I was under a curfew. 
if I was on a bus and the Israeli soldiers would get on the bus and inspect people's idea, you know, you would be asked for your idea, or if there was a roadblock. And when I was at Birzeit University, the university oftentimes was blockaded or the soldiers came onto campus. So, you know, I, I very much experienced the lived realities of Palestinians. What I saw in the streets increasingly, but on buses, etc., was the inhumane way in which the Israeli soldiers behaved towards Palestinians. The way they would talk to, the way they would, you know, physically handle, you know, the elderly, for no reason, in a very inhumane way. And I always thought, and I still do think, that the only way you can explain it, and the way you can explain what's going on now, is the way in which Palestinians are dehumanized within Israeli society. And it goes very deep. It's inculcated in the education system. It's also very much inculcated through the, the compulsory military service that everyone must undertake except for the very religious. And then you have the obligation to be a reservist, I think until you're like 50. That dominant racist ideology on which Zionism is, is based is manifested in this inhumane treatment of Palestinians on a one-to-one -one basis. And now we see the military might being used against a defenseless people, really. For me, it was a privilege, and I felt I was really contributing to something important, you know, in terms of I was an educator. For Palestinians, education is extremely important. They have had the highest rate of literacy anywhere in the world. And as Palestinians would tell you, you know, they can take our land, they can take our possessions, but they cannot take our education away from us. So education was always very important. I found our Palestinian students were extremely clever, keen to learn. It was just a very positive experience. And also I witnessed the type of solidarity that Palestinians felt amongst themselves, experienced. And that was in particular during the first Intifada, and I was there at, at the beginning of that because I left in 1991, so that began in December 1987. And as that went on, there were curfews and there were closures. We set up teaching in our homes, you know, in the neighborhoods, in, you know, other buildings besides the main campus. So people come together, and you see that right now in Gaza, which is quite amazing, uh, given the, the circumstances they're living in, that the people share. You know, if you go into a Palestinian home, they immediately offer you coffee, tea, and if they're if it's around, and you know some sweets, and if you know if you're there around a the meal time, you must eat, um, etc. So it's very generous. Well, it was quite an exciting period of time. You know, I also experienced United Palestinian Front. Be they would distribute leaflets secretly on the streets at night, and you'd wake up, you know, getting what's the latest. What are we, we being suggested that we do, you know, like if there was going to be a strike or, you know, about boycotting Israeli products, trying to, you know, inspire everyone to fight Israeli oppression, etc. That was really very interesting. Then, you know, to see the extent to which the Israeli military tried to control Palestinian lives. Like, for instance, one example, which is quite extraordinary, I think, 
during the Intifada, in one of these leaflets, they said, you know, we're not going to use Israeli time. We're going to have our own time, you know. And, uh, and so the Israeli soldiers, you know, sometimes they would stop people and ask to see their watch, you know, their watches, you know, what time were they on? So if they were on Palestinian time, then that was an indication, you know, that they were somebody to, you know, be arrested or beaten or, or harassed or whatever. So just even that little thing, or obviously at that point in time, I mean, to, to have a Palestinian flag, you know, would, would be seen illegal or to march on, on the street would be, you know, an expression of illegality. I was there in a very important transitional period of time. I mean, when I first arrived, so in 82, and I, I remember this very distinctly, that you could go into a shop in Ramallah and find Israeli soldiers, and, he, and some settlers actually, you know, sitting around chatting, which I thought this was really bizarre. But during the 80s, you have the emergence of all these civil society organizations. Of course, the military organizations were deemed terrorists and therefore illegal. But these organizations, like you could say with Hamas, and you know, you have a military wing, but then you have you know civil organizations. So you, know, you had women's organizations, and you had health organizations, and voluntary work committees, and things like that. There was a real transition. And of course, that coincided with, you know, when Israel invaded Lebanon in 1982, and then, you know, they moved up and they surrounded Beirut, you know, for three months until basically the PLO was removed from Lebanon. Up until that point in time, there was this notion that the land of Palestine would be liberated, you know, by the PLO from Lebanon. The 80s, 82, then on to the end of the 80s, is a very interesting period of Palestinian history when all these civil society organizations become very active. There's a growing consciousness that liberation is not going to come from the PLO and from outside, that if the change will come from within. And also it's during that time when the, the whole concept of Samud, which means steadfastness, really develops that, you know, okay, we don't have arms, but the important thing is the same put to staying on the ground. That is resistance. There's a crash that takes place in a petrol station in the Gaza Strip. Military vehicle runs into this Palestinian vehicle. People are killed. It's seen as a crime. I mean, it was meant. It was like tinder, like a light to all the oppression. You know, also the kind of organization that had taken place amongst the people and the raising of consciousness. And so Jabalia was really the, the first place that ignited in terms of that moment of resistance that began the first intifada. You know, we've had peace treaties signed and so forth, but it's never really taken the full consideration of Palestinian needs into account. You know, even at the time of the creation of Israel, Eleanor Roosevelt, president's wife, obviously Franklin Roosevelt, died in 1945, but she becomes one of the key authors of the UN Declaration on Human Rights. But she was a absolutely pro-Israel, and when the Palestinians 
were displaced and the violence against them in 1948 didn't didn't see it despite hundreds of letters from Palestinians and Palestinian women being written to her you know just didn't see it and they are in a sense the international community the powers in the international community despite the popular reaction do in a sense treat them like second class citizens you know they aren't they don't have the same political power the same ability to secure attention and to maintain support internationally when they did under arafat once he renounced violence and so forth you know his power was maintained largely by making concessions on the part of the Palestinians rather than securing extra rights. There is sympathy for Palestine. It's just the unfortunate thing is in terms of balance of power and those who have, you know, veto power at the UN, those who have economic preponderance, those who have leverage over the situation don't care as much. You know, the fact is in terms of governance at global level, there is no workable system at the moment. The unit of reference by default is always going to be the nation state. And that will always mean that a small handful of really powerful nation states will make decisions that will impact on the rest of us and that we don't have the ability to influence those in turn. Someone in the US, the UK, could say, let's stop, enough is enough because this project is failing. You know, a lot of people right now are saying in Gaza, we feel abandoned. Is anybody listening? Is, is anybody doing anything? We feel abandoned by the world. What are you supposed to do? You have been listening to the first part of a two-part documentary on Gaza and the Palestine question. Part two deals with the events surrounding October 7, 2023 and its aftermath. 